Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our first guest is philosopher and bioethicist Peter Singer. Some have called him the world's most influential living philosopher, and he is probably best known for his work on the ethics of our treatment of animals. Singer is often credited with starting the modern animal rights movement with his 1975 book, Animal Liberation. He is also the founder of The Life You Can Save, a philanthropic organization based on his more recent book of the same name. In the book, Singer argues that we should all be doing much more to improve the lives of people living in extreme poverty. Singer was born in Melbourne, Australia, and educated at the University of Melbourne and the University of Oxford. After teaching in Australia, England, and the United States, he became professor of bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. Peter Singer was recently on the IU campus to speak about ethics and our treatment of animals. While he was here, he sat down for a conversation with WFIU's Will Murphy. Well, let's begin by talking, first of all, about how you became interested in the question of ethics and ethical living? First, I have to say I became interested in philosophy more or less by accident because I knew nothing about it from high school. We didn't, there was no philosophy classes in high school when I was going there. But my older sister had a boyfriend who was doing philosophy and I happened to talk to him about it and it sounded interesting. So I went up to university. I wanted to continue doing history because I'd enjoyed that at school, but I thought I'll pick up philosophy just to see a little bit about what it's like. And then within philosophy, there are these range of different topics. And some of them, well, all of them are intellectually interesting. But some of them really are just a bit too distant from real life for me. So I couldn't really imagine spending a lot of time talking about how do I know that I'm not dreaming now when I'm talking to you. But on the other hand, questions about how ought I to live, the questions that you know, Socrates went around Athens asking, and we did Plato's Republic in my first year of philosophy, they clearly are relevant and important, and they're the kinds of things that you can talk about over a beer with, with anyone, and they ought to have an interest in that kind of issue. So that attracted me, and when I started to focus in philosophy, I focused particularly on ethics and political philosophy as well, uh, and that was a time of the Vietnam War and civil rights movements and so on, a lot, of, a lot of issues that raised big ethical questions that weren't being discussed very much by philosophers at the time. So I felt this was a lack, this was something that philosophers ought to be more involved in. And so I was keen to get into that area and to start working on ethical questions that really made a difference to how we live. I'd like to ask how your family history influenced your perspective on ethics, if at all. You have a family that was affected deeply by the Holocaust. That's right. My parents came to Australia as refugees from the Nazis. They left before the war, fortunately. But their parents did not leave. I guess they didn't really think the danger was nearly as serious. Well, who could have imagined that the Nazis would actually try to kill all the Jews in Europe? It's, it was incredible. Still is unbelievable when you try to think about it. So they didn't leave. They all got sent to camps. Uh, one of them survived. So my mother's mother was the only one who survived, and she came out to Australia after the war. So I had one grandparent rather than four. And that obviously deeply affected me, deeply affected my parents. But exactly how it relates to my philosophical views is 
something that's difficult for me to speculate about. I suppose you could say a guiding thread of my philosophy is trying to reduce unnecessary suffering. Perhaps you could say that comes from the completely uh, brutal and unnecessary suffering that the Nazis inflicted on not only Jews but many others who were under their power. It's hard to say really what that connection is. I do have a strong advocacy for rule of law, for nonviolent decision, uh, conflict resolution. So maybe that also comes from looking at the history of Europe and how it descended into that horrendous situation in the 30s. So that could be another aspect of it. Do you see a correlation between religious perspective and ethical stance? Yes, uh, there certainly is a correlation. It's not rigid, but definitely on issues in bioethics that I've worked on, for example, those who take the view that we must never take the life of an innocent human being and therefore they're opposed to physician assistance in dying very often come from a religious stance, not always. But I'm sure if you compared people who take that view with those who favor physician assistance in dying, you would find quite a sharp difference in religious beliefs, far more people having not only religious beliefs but fairly conservative religious beliefs on the side of the opposition. And to some extent that applies in other areas as well. When I talk about animals and ethics, the idea that somehow humans are in a different category from animals often goes along with the religious belief that humans are made in the image of God or have an immortal soul and non-human animals don't. The issue that I work on where there's the greatest agreement between myself and religious people, particularly religious Christians, I guess, is in terms of our obligation to help people in extreme poverty. Oftentimes in philosophy, one uses specific terminology, and in the course of our conversations just already, you've used the term bioethics. Can you unpack that for us? Yes, bioethics is the study of ethical issues raised by the biological sciences, including medicine and the health sciences. It's an area that I guess really got going in the 1970s when there were a lot of new developments in biomedicine that clearly raised ethical issues. Uh, for example, in vitro fertilization raised questions about whether this is the right thing to do and then what should we do with embryos that are left over that may be frozen and viable? Can we do research on them? Genetic selection is clearly another important issue in bioethics. And these questions about end-of-life decisions, which began with the development of the respirator, and then you have questions about can you turn off a respirator if a person's brain has completely ceased to function? Is it okay to withdraw the respirator? That's another set of ethical issues that clearly come under the umbrella of bioethics. When you begin your career, as you pointed out, a lot of things are going on, the foment of Vietnam being chief among them environmental activism to some degree, but animal liberation, as we've come to know it, really not on the scene in the same degree. And in fact, your book, Animal Liberation, is often thought of as seminal in starting that movement. What brought you in the area of animal rights and animal liberation? Again, there was a chance encounter. I was a graduate student at Oxford. So this is 1970. I was 24 years old. And today, it's pretty hard to imagine that you could get to 24 and especially be studying philosophy and ethics and not really have met somebody who was a vegetarian for ethical reasons. But that was the case. I had not. I, I might have met a vegetarian who was a Hindu, perhaps, or someone who was a vegetarian because they thought it was better for their health. But an ethical vegetarian, somebody who was concerned about the way animals get treated in farming, I had not met. 
but I happened to get into a conversation with a Canadian graduate student called Richard Keshin, and the conversation was nothing to do with animals initially. It was just one of the classes we'd been attending that we talked about, and he invited me to lunch at his college, and uh, we were presented with a plate of spaghetti with a brown sauce over it, and Richard said, can you tell me if there's meat in that sauce? And when the answer was yes, he didn't take the spaghetti, he took a salad plate, which was the only other option. And so after we'd finished our conversation about whatever it was in the class we were talking about, I asked him what his problem with meat was. He told me, as I say, that he didn't really think we ought to treat animals the way the animal whose flesh was ground up in my spaghetti sauce had been treated. And I knew very little about this. It just had never seemed to me that issues about animals could possibly be comparably important to any issues about humans. But that conversation really got me started, uh, prompted me to look more deeply into this question and have further conversations with Richard and with uh, some other people he knew and read about it. And I started to see that this was a sort of ethical blindness on my part, that all these years I'd been eating meat without really thinking about what it was doing to animals and whether we were justified in treating animals in the way we were. At what point, if at all, did you convert to vegetarianism? Uh, reasonably soon. Um, I was already married at this point. My wife was with me in Oxford. So uh, I talked to her about it. And I suppose the first thing that shocked me was that so many of the animals that we were eating no longer were outside in the fields at all, but that they were locked up inside sheds, often very closely confined. And so the first decision we made was to stop eating factory-farmed animal products, including factory-farmed eggs. That maybe took just a couple of weeks or possibly up to a month. But fairly soon after we'd made that change, we thought, oh, yeah, we're not so sure about the other animals and how they're treated either. You know, it turned out not to be so difficult to uh, avoid eating the factory-farmed meat, so we decided just to make a clean break and to not eat meat at all. And you raised your, I believe you have three daughters, you raised them all vegetarian? Exactly. Yes, I have three daughters, and they were all raised vegetarian, and somewhat surprisingly, they, 40 years later, they still all are vegetarian. Were there groans at the time? Kids can often be uh, very unhappy with uh, the virtues of their parents. No, um, there was none of that. In fact, their instincts went the other way, because they hadn't had meat, and my wife's mother was rather concerned that they wouldn't grow up strong and healthy without meat. So one time when they were staying with her, she slipped a bit of chicken into a sandwich that she'd made for one of them. I think it was the oldest one, Ruth. And she bit into the sandwich, and she sort of you know, looked at it, pulled out this thing that was inside it, and said, yuck, what's this? <laughs> so I think that the lesson was, was if, if you don't get them used to it, they actually are you know, not particularly interested in it. That does seem, though, especially at the time in the 1970s, seems like a very difficult thing to orchestrate just logistically. Well, the, the only real difficulty was when they got invited to birthday parties. We were back in Australia, and so there were a lot of barbecues for these birthday parties. And so we had to find some vegetarian kind of hamburger stuff that she could take along to the barbecue so that there was something she could throw on the barbecue and still have something. What differences do you see in public perception about animal rights when you wrote this book and 40-some years later? Yeah. Well, there's a huge difference in perception. As we've been saying, there are vegetarians and vegans everywhere. People are aware of the animal rights viewpoint. They're familiar with it. They don't all agree with it, but they know it's there. 
and a lot of institutions are therefore concerned about what they're doing and they think about what they're doing as it affects animals, particularly those that are in the public eye and might attract some criticism. That's a really big improvement, a really positive change. And there are all these active and large organizations now that didn't exist before. Before there were anti-cruelty organizations, they were mostly focused on dogs and cats. They didn't really talk about farmed animals, which the overwhelming majority of the animals that we inflict suffering on are farmed animals. That scene has changed. But what hasn't changed nearly enough, it's changed a little, but it hasn't changed nearly enough, is the actual treatment of animals. So the things that we're doing to animals are still almost the same as they were when I wrote Animal Liberation. Um, I don't want to ignore the progress that has been made. There has been some, and progress is happening now, perhaps picking up a little bit more with more and more supermarket change and fast food outlets saying they won't use eggs from caged hens They won't buy pig products from pig farms that don't allow the breeding sows to turn around. The veal industry is giving a little more space to its calves. But in terms of the overwhelming majority of animals that are eaten in America, they still come from animals kept indoors in very crowded conditions that are not at all suited for their species. Philosopher Peter Singer. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Peter Singer is a professor of bioethics and the author of several books, but he's perhaps best known for his 1975 book, Animal Liberation. Peter Singer is speaking with Will Murphy. In your book, you articulate really two tracks of concern. One is use of animals in research and use of animals as a food source. Can we break those off for the moment? look at the uh, use of animals in research. It seems to me that's an area where there might have been a lot of progress given the capacity to model medicine and medical technologies with computer not relying on animal. Indeed, there, there has been progress in that area. Partly, as you say, computer modeling, also the use of in vitro testing. And a lot of this has come through the good work of the animal movement. Uh, for example, it was a a dear friend of mine who unfortunately is no longer with us called Henry Spira, who had the first campaign in the US against the testing of cosmetics on animals. He targeted Revlon, you know, had information from the Freedom of Information Act that Revlon was blinding thousands of rabbits to test its cosmetics. And he used this to basically show Revlon that he could damage their reputation. But he didn't ask them just to stop the testing right now because under FDA regulations, that would have meant they couldn't introduce any new products at all. So he had a better tactic, which was to say, we want you to donate a small portion of your revenues to develop an alternative to these tests on rabbits. And they did that, and the money flowed, and the money had the results that uh, Henry was hoping for. So we can do those tests without using animals now. That's definitely progress. And in fact, I think there is a somewhat better attitude to animals in the laboratory sciences. Steven Pinker, in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, he's a psychologist by background, actually says that probably the worst thing that he has ever done was to torture a rat to death. And he did that when he was doing his PhD in psychology. He wasn't deliberately setting out to torture the rat to death, but he set up an experiment under the guidance of a distinguished professor, which had that effect. And he says that was really a horrible thing to do. But at that time, 
it was just taken as normal research in psychology. But now he says, you know, nobody would do that. You wouldn't get those experiments through an ethics committee anymore. So that's a good sign of progress as well. I was going to ask, uh, these days, I would presume that most universities, if not all, have an office entirely dedicated to reviewing grant applications and scientific research to make sure it's compliant with ethical standards. What's the role of the university in this sort of question? Yeah, I think um, they're required if they receive federal funding of any kind, and of course they all do, they're required to have an institutional uh, ethics committee that looks at both human and animal research. And that, I think, has a salutary role. I mean, the fact that the researchers know that what they're proposing to do is going to be looked at by a committee, and that committee cannot consist exclusively of their fellow scientists who might just pat them on the back and say, you know, yeah, go ahead. There has to be an outsider on that, somebody from uh, outside the research community. Sometimes that doesn't mean very much. Uh, Sometimes it's somebody's golfing partner or whatever, but quite often now there are people with an interest in animal welfare and with expertise in animal welfare. So I think it it has a beneficial effect. I'd still like to see the guidelines changed and made clearer that you have to weigh the suffering of the animal against the potential benefit. That's not always clear in the guidelines to the committees. And I'd like to see a stronger representation of people from outside the science community and with an interest in animal welfare which happens in some other countries. I think the U.S. is not in the lead on this question of who gets to sit on the committee. So I think it could still be improved, and there are certainly still experiments that go on in universities that I would not approve of at all, but we have made progress. If we can turn just a moment from the animal rights question to the uh, broader question that you've uh, addressed recently of poverty in the world and addressing human suffering... And you've got this book that you wrote, I think, somewhere around 2009, The Life You Can Save, and it spawned a whole sort of movement. Talk a little bit about that book, uh, the website that you've set up, and the goals that you have. Yeah, this has been a longstanding interest of mine, um, going back again to my early days in the 1970s when I wrote an article called Famine, Affluence, and Morality, in which I argued that we in the rich countries, uh, at least those of us who are not the very poorest in the rich countries, have resources that we could use to help people who are much worse off than we are. And uh, extreme poverty in developing countries is something that really is far below the sort of poverty lines that we have in the United States. People living on maybe $2 a day and often not able to get enough food or basic health care, so they watch their children die from preventable causes like diarrhea or malaria. And there are things that we can do to reduce that. That issue I kept a watch on for a while, but I wrote a couple of articles about it. The New York Times published a couple of pieces that I wrote, um, and they got a strong response. So eventually I thought, it's time to write a book on this as well. And in that, I drew together my thinking about how relatively simple it is for us to reduce suffering in the developing countries and how we ought to be doing something more about that. And I suggested a kind of scale on which people could give depending on their income that would make enough contribution. I was looking at the total amount we could raise that would really have a significant impact on the extent of extreme poverty in the world. Uh, So I wrote that book, uh, The Life You Can Save. It got some good reactions. And a friend said, you ought to set up a website so that people can go online and pledge to give this proportion of their income that you think they ought to, to effective organizations. And then you could also 
post which of the organizations that you believe to be most effective. So I did that and that went on for a little while and then a guy called Charlie Bressler wrote to me and said he'd had a successful career in the retail industry but it had never really quite clicked with his values and now that he was getting into his 60s he thought he wanted to do something that was more in harmony with his values and would he like me to work just as an unpaid volunteer for the life you can save? And so I said, yeah, great, if you got that expertise. So he really got it going as an organization. It's now a 501c3, so you can deduct donations to it. But more important, it's got a website where you can go to thelifeyoucansave.org and you can see the list of charities that have been carefully researched where your donation will do the most good. So you don't have to worry about, will my money really reach the people who I'm trying to help? And by going there, you can then donate directly. You don't have to donate to the life you can save. You donate directly to the organizations that we're recommending. And we're very pleased that now, um, I think last year, something like $3 million flowed through that website. And we're hoping to keep building and increasing that because the potential is huge. And if people give to really effective organizations, they just get so much better value for what they're donating than if they just give in a more or less haphazard way. I have to say I was surprised in my cursory look at the website that there seemed very little reference to animals, in part because that's been a focus of your work and in part because I think there's such a strong correlation between poverty and animals, especially in other parts of the world. Yes, uh, I've tried to keep those areas uh, separate in this particular enterprise because I know some people are just concerned about helping humans and not concerned about helping animals. And though I do think that that's regrettable on the whole, I didn't want to put them off doing what is going to help people in extreme poverty by the idea that there was a lot of stuff about animals on that website as well. On my own website, petersinger.info, I do talk about my work for animals and I recommend Animal Charity Evaluators, which is a website and an organization that does roughly the same for animal charities that The Life You Can Save is doing for poverty-related human charities. Yeah, that's the explanation. It's not that I don't think that they're important. And I also agree with what you just said, that they are interrelated, that very often we're feeding lots of grain to animals, which we're basically wasting up to nine-tenths of the food value of the grain. And if we weren't doing that, grain prices would be lower and it would be easier for people to feed themselves and their families. When I drive home today, it's very likely that I'm going to see somebody standing at an intersection with a sign that says homeless, possibly homeless veteran, homeless mother, please help, anything you can give, God bless. I'm going to turn on the television and see a PSA by Sarah McLaughlin about the plight of abandoned animals. I'm going to see a news report about uh, global warming. One starts to feel a bit overwhelmed and at a loss as to what direction to go. And I guess my question is, in a lot of your work, there's this, what's the greatest impact for what I do? So as I'm faced with this myriad of decisions about how to act ethically in the world, how do I make these sort of prioritizations? Yes, that's a, a very good question. And it's a difficult one, but I, I do think that we should all be looking at how we get the best value for what we're doing. And if you give to the person with a homeless sign, you know, you really don't know what that money is doing. You don't, firstly, you don't know whether the person is genuine. My wife had an experience at the train station in New York where she got somebody who told her, a, seemed like a very sincere story about how he'd lost his wallet and needed a few dollars to get home and so on. 
So she gave him a few dollars, and then she came back about a month later to the same station, and the same guy came up to her with exactly the same pitch. So, you know, I don't have the time to do the research to separate people who are genuine and those who are not. And it's a shame because you perhaps would like to help people who are genuine. On the other hand, when it comes to charities, there is research you can quickly get online, as I mentioned, through thelifeyoucansave.org. There's also givewell.org, which is another organization that does great research on uh, charities. And you can know that you're getting good value for what you're doing. And it's strange in a way that people think about the importance of getting value for money when they're buying something for themselves. If you need to buy a new phone or a new laptop, you're going to want to check which laptops or phones will do the job you want without paying over the top for them. But when it comes to giving to charities, people don't really think about that. And yet the difference between the best charity and the worst charity is much greater than the difference between the best laptop and the worst laptop. It's so great that no store would carry something so bad that gave such bad value. Whereas in the philanthropy market, since people don't really do the investigations, organizations can get away with giving very poor value. Now take, you mentioned, for example, an appeal for stray animals or animals that need to be rescued. You know, I understand why people care about dogs and cats because they have them at home and they know what they're like. But the majority probably of the money, perhaps up to 90% of the money that's given to animal welfare in this country goes to dogs and cats. Dogs and cats are a tiny percentage of the animals in need of help because we produce something like uh, between 8 and 9 billion farmed animals each year who live in atrocious conditions, generally suffer much more than dogs and cats do. So we've got 8 to 9 billion against uh, maybe some tens of millions. So we're talking about order of magnitude that's so much greater for farmed animals. And yet they get so much less money in terms of trying to change the conditions, trying to persuade people not to support factory farming by buying its products. So there are multiples of 10 or 100 times greater effectiveness that you get in different areas of giving. And that's true with humans and it's true with animals as well. And if I understand what you've just said correctly, you could do a lot more with your money if you're giving to something that affects animals processed for meat, animals used in research versus uh, dogs who, in my case, for example, at my house, my dogs have a very nice life and probably live a lot better, unfortunately, than some people in the world. Right. And that'll be the case for most of the dogs and cats in the United States, that they do live better lives than all of the factory-farmed animals, really. And as you say, sometimes better than some people. Now, there are some that are horribly abused, and that's very distressing. But to try to help them is much more costly, I think, than helping the organizations that are most effectively trying to reduce the suffering of farmed animals. As I say, if you go to animalcharityevaluators.org, you can find which of those organizations are most effectively helping the largest number of animals. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our first guest today is philosopher and bioethicist Peter Singer. He's speaking with Will Murphy. As we all go about our lives, we all think of ourselves as pretty good people, I think. And we carry around with us this sort of Sartrean notion that hell is other people. It's not us. I'm a good guy. It's that other guy that's a jerk. And we have this notion that when we make a contribution to X charity, we're doing a good thing. But especially as we get into this era of GoFundMe campaigns for different good things, 
it seems anymore that ethics is almost a financial question. It's not a personal belief question. It's, I clicked, so I'm good. Yes, and that is a kind of a depersonalization of ethics, which a lot of people lament. And they say ethics is about how you relate to the people close to you. And of course, that is an important part of ethics, undoubtedly. You know, you're, you're not a good person if you're mean and cruel to your spouse or you don't care for your children or you're not a good friend to people who've been good to you and then when they're in need, you don't help them. So a lot of ethics is like that. But we do live in a world now which is much more complex and where we have the ability to do either good or harm at a distance. And that's really a dramatic change from a few hundred years ago when that was very limited. Traditional ethics and even the evolved innate responses that have come down to us from millions of years of evolution are focused on those things that are close to us, that are tangible. They're focused, for example, on doing physical violence to somebody. They're not focused on a failure to help people who are far away, whom you can help. They're also not focused on things like contributing to climate change because obviously we have no evolved response to emitting greenhouse gases. That's never been a problem until the last few decades. So I think that we really need to rethink some of our ethical standards and to try to encourage people to take a different view in which we do see at least a significant part of what it is to live ethically as to be aware of the impact that we have on people who are distant from us and to be aware also of the people who are distant from us whom we could help if we choose to do so, where not helping them might be something that means we're not really living a fully ethical life in the 21st century. Now, I think I read somewhere that you advocate or perhaps you yourself offer about 30% of income per year is there a threshold? Uh, you know, you always wonder if you're doing enough. What does one recommend for one's contribution to the welfare of the world? Right. So, yes, I do. It, it varies a bit from year to year, but somewhere between 30 and 40% of our income is what my wife and I donate to charities. Now, I'm a Princeton professor. I'm pretty comfortably off. This is not something I recommend for everyone. People have different commitments and different responsibilities. Really, in a way, they have to work it out themselves. There is on the website, thelifeyoucansave.org, there is a kind of a, a chart of what's a reasonable contribution in relation to your income, but it's a suggestion. And in fact, we're moving more now to the idea of recommending to people that if they're interested in this issue and they agree that they ought to be doing something, they just start with you know more or less any figure that they choose that is something significant. It might be 1% of their income, and they see how they're comfortable with that, and then I set that as a standard and you know next year you try and do better just as if you go jogging or some kind of exercise you might time yourself around the oval and uh, then you say okay that's my personal best um, let's see if I can beat that so I'd like people to think about that in terms of giving my personal best so far has been to give one percent but next year I'm giving two percent or maybe I'm giving ten percent if I start off more ambitiously but whatever it is get comfortable with it and then try to do better. You literally wrote the book on the history of ethics. I think you've written uh, encyclopedic entries. Where do we stand sort of historically in terms of our approach to ethics and living the ethical life? History of ethics is a very long subject, obviously. Um, I see the origins of ethics actually as going even to our primate ancestors uh, because we can see in chimpanzee societies today 
some things that look like our sort of ethics in terms of the idea that we should reciprocate when we do favors. So um, if a chimpanzee presents her back to another chimpanzee and the other chimpanzee picks out the lice or burrs or whatever, and then the chimpanzee who's done the picking out of the burrs presents her back to the other one, and the chimpanzee does nothing, walks away, the chimpanzee who did the picking out will get angry, basically saying, hey, I did you a turn, what about doing me the same turn? So I think we see a lot of our ideas of reciprocity and gratitude and so on in this primate social evolution. Then we've got this whole history of different cultures that have influenced it and uh, different philosophical ideas that have come in. But I'm still interested in this basic question that's been around certainly in the Western tradition since ancient Greece, which is what does it take to live a good life? How can a good life for you also be a life in which you do good for others? So I think that there is a, at least a partial harmony between those two because I think psychological research has shown clearly enough that people who are generous to others, who help others, are happier themselves. They're, they're more satisfied with their own life they find their life more meaningful and fulfilling, and that's a need that we humans have, not just to enjoy ourselves very often, but to find fulfillment in our lives. So I think a good life is one in which you do care about the well-being of others. You care about that directly. And as a side effect of doing that, you actually find your own life a uh, purposive one, uh, a rich and fulfilling one because of helping others. In a way, you anticipated my next question, but I want to ask it anyway. Some 45 years ago, you wrote a thesis called, Why Should I Be Moral? We've sort of taken as an assumption, you should be moral. But let's just say, hypothetically, you're, I don't know, a political official in the United States of America, and you're not that interested in the welfare of other people. You've got billions of dollars. I can't imagine who you're talking about here. <laughs> We're just speculating. The person seems perfectly happy. Why should he be moral? Well, that is an ancient question, certainly. And as I said, for most people, I think they will actually be happier if they are ethical. But it's possible that there are some temperaments, people who don't care about that. Uh, there have been a lot of studies about psychopaths and interesting case for moral theory because some psychopaths at least the ones who avoid ending up in prison, seem to enjoy their lives, and yet they clearly don't really care about others, and they're certainly not living ethical lives. So for them, it may be that there really isn't a compelling, a persuasive answer. I think there still is an answer, and that is because it's the right thing to do, and because the universe will be a better place if you do act ethically. I think those things are true, but they don't get a grip on people who say, well, I don't care about whether the universe is a better place. I just care about what makes me happy. So maybe at some point, and I do think it's a minority of people, but maybe at some point we really need to use the full range of sanctions and pressures to prevent those people acting in a flagrantly unethical way. And of course, you know, at some point we all agree that you have to lock people up if they're violent towards others. So there's not an argument really about that. But I think we need social sanctions as well. And one of the sort of larger aims of some of my work is to try to get people to see that if you're not doing something to help others and if you're indifferent to the suffering of others, that's not enough. You're not living an ethical life, even if you are still a good spouse, a good parent, and a good friend. So I would like us to see that as part of what we accept as living an ethical life and in some way to put, therefore, some social pressure on people to move towards that. 
a problem that's bothered me as long as I can remember as a kid, and I'm sure it's been something with us throughout history. When you look at the past 20 years, the past 100 years, the technological revolutions have been phenomenal. But when I look at people, there seems to be very little moral evolution. They seem ethically not to be growing to the same degree that they seem capable of innovating technologically. Do you have any insight on that? What can we do to advance more radically on a moral scale? You're certainly right that technological innovation uh, and technological progress goes faster than ethical progress. That's true. But I do think that we are making ethical progress, even if more slowly. I argued this back in the 1980s in a book called The Expanding Circle, but Steven Pinker addresses it with a lot more research backing in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And he argues that by just about any indication, we are a better world than we were centuries ago, and we're a better world than we were even 50 years ago. The chances, for example, of any person in the world today dying a violent death at the hands of their fellow human beings are much less than they were in any of those past eras. And that surprises many people because you know, the media are always reporting violence, uh, civil war in Syria, terrorist attacks, uh, individual brutal murders, shootings. We certainly have those. But still, the level of violence has fallen. These are not as universal as violence was in the past. Also, if you look at things like literacy has increased worldwide, education, particularly education of girls, is increasing. The number of children who die before their fifth birthday is falling. The number of people living in extreme poverty is falling. So we are actually making progress, and I hope that we'll continue to do so. Why is it slower than technology? Well, I think that's because some of our ethical ideas are ones that are innate within us. They're just instinctive gut reactions. And they're not always appropriate to the 21st century, but they're very hard to overcome. It takes a lot of education and cultural influence to overcome them and to develop the new reactions that we need to have for the problems we face in the 21st century. So that's why I think you're right to say ethical progress is slower than technological progress, but it is there. It is happening. Do you believe yourself, as Martin Luther King once said, that the arc of the universe tends toward justice? I would say the arc of the universe tends towards greater well-being for all. Whether that's exactly the same as justice, it's uh, certainly an important part of it. Certainly there are minorities who get left behind, and that's, that's tragic. I hope that eventually we will change and we will see that. But definitely we are improving in, in well-being and even in terms of our treatment of animals, though the scale is increasing, I think we are making progress in reducing some of the more egregious suffering that we inflict on animals. You've come to Bloomington to the IU campus to speak to students about animal rights and ethical engagement. And you started your career in academia almost 50 years ago at a time of political turmoil, much like we have right now. Can you give us a litmus test of the two generations? How optimistic do you feel about this generation versus the one in which you came to adulthood? The generation in which I came to adulthood was very much energized and mobilized by the Vietnam War, which, of course, many people, males only at that time, were liable for the draft and to be sent to Vietnam. Also, the civil rights movement, which was a great upheaval against longstanding injustice. 
Today's generation, I don't think, has the same unity of purpose and vision in coming together. And I think there's one great moral issue that we're facing that we haven't really talked about, which is even more relevant to our times than the Vietnam War was to my generation. And yet students are not really very mobilized against it, and that's climate change. And I think there's a clear reason for that. My generation had this television footage of what the Vietnam War was doing. There was that famous photo of a a young girl running naked down a street having been napalmed with burns all over her body from uh, American planes dropping napalm. You can't see something like that that you can directly attribute to climate change. And yet we know that climate change is happening. We know that we're getting more intense storms, more intense flooding, vast wildfires that didn't happen before. And we know that the effects on people in poorer countries are worse still because they don't have the ways of defending themselves against them that we do. So this is an enormous moral issue that we're at a pivotal moment for that's affecting the climate of our planet now and will continue to affect it for centuries. And yet there aren't the numbers of visible protests and people out in the streets about it that there were for the Vietnam War. To me, that's the main thing weighing on the question, uh, is this generation really facing up to its ethical problems in the way that my generation faced up to Vietnam and the denial of civil rights to African Americans? You were groundbreaking in the 1970s in articulating animal liberation with your writing. Are you taking a similar approach with global warming? I've certainly uh, written and spoken about this. I don't think I can be groundbreaking in the same way because other people have been talking about it for a long time. Uh, Bill McKibben's book, The End of Nature, I guess, was the groundbreaking book for me on, on this issue. I think it appeared in the 1980s, and he's been a leader since, and there are a lot of other people who are writing about it. So I can't play that pioneering role, but I can add my voice to it, and I have written about it on a number of occasions, particularly in my book, One World Now, which looks at globalization and climate change is clearly a, a globalizing problem. Peter Singer, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Will. It was great having a chance to have a conversation with you. Peter Singer, philosopher and professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He's been speaking with Will Murphy. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our next guest has her own thoughts about the relationship between humans and animals, as well as some of the broader ethical and ecological effects of that relationship. Paleoanthropologist Pat Shipman teaches at Penn State and is an internationally recognized expert in taphonomy, the study of how living animals are transformed into skeletons and then fossils. Her research attempts to reconstruct the ecology of ancient environments from the preserved remains of our early ancestors. Her recent book, The Invaders, presents her theories about how early humans competed for resources with Neanderthals and quickly overwhelmed them. And Shipman believes that one of the secret weapons early humans used was the first domesticated dogs. Wolf dogs, to be more precise. On a recent visit to Bloomington, Pat Shipman also spoke with WFIU's Will Murphy. Let's begin just by addressing the basic premise of your book. What is it you're arguing in this book? I'm arguing two points. One of them is to make sure people understand that human beings, modern humans, 
are invasive species unless they're in Africa. Because as far as we know, and it continues to be supported by all of the evidence, modern humans evolved in Africa, then moved out of Africa, and eventually spread around the world. An invasive species is one that has spread into an area, a geographic region, to which they are not native. And we think of things like kudzu, zebra mussels, cane toads, lionfish, Burmese pythons in the Everglades. They're all invasive species. That's what we are. And this is not a positive term. No, it is not a positive term. It is generally a negative term, but it is also a term that applies to species that can adapt to a great many different habitats, lifestyles, conditions, temperatures. So a highly adaptable species, often one that reproduces fairly fast, which we don't do because we don't generally have litters. We have singletons most of the time. That also means that invasive species come into an ecosystem and disrupt it. And sometimes the ecosystem wins and the invasive species is either confined to a very small area or actually dies out. But sometimes, and that is clearly the case with humans, they take over. And why the invasive species wins out is a really vital question. What about Neanderthals? They used to be all over Europe. They're not there anymore. Some of their genes survive, but it's not a big percentage. The second premise is? How come we survived and they didn't? And I began thinking about this fairly intently when I read a paper by a Belgian researcher, Mietje Germanprey, who, with a group of other very clever people, began realizing that there were unrecognized animals in the fossil record in Europe that everybody had always said, well, they're wolves, because what else are they going to be? And she began looking at them very critically and realizing that they might very well be dogs or be very early attempts at making dogs, not that anybody intended to make a dog, right? <laughs> right. Because dogs are the first ever domesticated species. Nobody had done this anywhere with any animal This was a completely novel idea that you could even somehow do this. This is before goats, cows, Goats, cows, horses, pigs, yaks, chickens. And we're talking roughly, what, 40,000? Well, she has now identified a lot, I mean, like 40 individual, and I will call them canids, meaning the doggy group, Mm -hmm. canines, canids from various sites in Europe, and they range in age to about 35,000 years ago, maybe almost 40,000 years ago. And prior to her work, people would have said 14,000 years ago is when dogs arise. So this is a real shocker. And it made me think a whole lot about, why do you want dogs? I mean, we're not talking about poodles. (laughs) We're not talking about cocker spaniels. We're not talking about all those lovely dogs that we own now that sit by the fire, that play with our children. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about wolves. 
Actually, if I read your book correctly, we're talking about, on the one hand, there's wolves, and then there is this group that she discovers and identifies that's not that, nor are they what we have now. Right. So they don't fit in any of the convenient categories. One way to think of it is that it is a first attempt to domesticate wolves, and anything like domestication requires two participants— Domestication, the word actually comes from domus, as in domicile, meaning it lives in your home. It lives in your space. Right. And this, of course, is the basis of why so many of us who have pets think of them as members of the family. They are members of the family. Both species have to change. They have to choose to do this because it is beneficial to them. Collaborating with this other species will give you a benefit. And they think cooperating with you is going to give them a benefit. So let's set the scene. We haven't really talked about the specifics of the site that you talk about in this book. Lay out the case. What do we find there? We're talking about Ice Age Europe. We're talking about a nasty cold climate, but there are a lot of animals. Neanderthals have been there for hundreds of thousands of years. And they are certainly adept hunters, and they have tools, and they have fire, and they are wearing skins. I mean, these are not your archetypal cavemen saying, ugh, although that's the way they've been portrayed. And we come marching in, just following game, and there seems to be a real change in the animals that are being captured and hunted once modern humans get there. What record, what fossil record is there of the wolves and or wolf dogs themselves? There's quite a good record, and it gets markedly better once there are wolf dogs. All of a sudden, you start getting skeletal remains of these animals, and one reason is wolves, wolf dogs, are territorial, which means they preferentially try to kill outsiders who come in who might be taking their stuff, their food, their warmth, their safety. Now, the remains that you find at these sites, it's not that humans stop killing wolves. They still kill wolves, right? And you're a taphonomist? Yes. Someone who studies the cutting patterns on fossils and bones? Yes. What do those tell us about the remnants of these dog wolves versus the remains of these wolves? The ones from the outside are being skinned. They're being systematically butchered, uh, which leads me to suspect they're being eaten. And the wolf dogs are not treated like that. And very occasionally there are signs this early that they're being buried. And sometimes they are buried in special places And some of them have red ochre on them, so they've been treated in some post-mortem ceremonial fashion. There's one very wonderful thing where you've got a complete skull, so you've got the cranium and the jaw, and the mouth is open, and there's a mammoth bone stuck in its mouth, maybe as afterlife food. When you get to about 15,000, which is when everybody always thought dogs had been domesticated, you get cemeteries full of dogs. So there is a hint 
that there's a ceremonial or a spiritual feeling about these early dogs. And the more doggy they get, the more time goes on, the closer they become to being human. It's striking that we've been talking about sites that are largely in Eurasia or in Europe, but there's a universal phenomenon, it seems like, this bonding between yep. dog-like species and humans that happens irrespective of continent. Yes, and its most basic level, what happens is people bring dogs. So we know genetically that the dogs of the Americas are descended from the Siberian dogs. They came with people who came in because if you're a hunter, a dog is a really good thing to have. <laughs> you don't want to break up the team. You don't want to break up the team. They are way too useful. And I would say no domestic animal has ever gone extinct. Hmm. So that once you get to that point where you really understand each other, you know what they can give you, you know what they need, they know you're to be trusted, you know, that whole deep, complicated negotiation that has gone on over years. I was talking with somebody about this book and how much I was enjoying it, and the person asked me, what does she want people to get out of it and think about it? That's a great question. One point, which is the one that has gone down the easiest with my scholarly colleagues and the general public, is the invasive species issue. I think particularly as... Life proceeds, people continue to have babies, we run out of land, we run out of water, we run out of all kinds of things. We need to keep thinking about the whole ecosystem and our place in it, not just my little place in it, what I want. So I would really like people to pay more attention to the consequences ecologically of our actions the other part of it is to take a look at the lovely poodle that you take for walks every day and the immense amount of emotional and psychological value those animals provide us because they do and it's real and it's been shown scientifically over and over and over again. This is not just people being sentimental. This is not just people being silly. Living with animals is really important to humans, and it offers us tremendous benefits. And we need to be aware of those benefits, be grateful for those benefits, and also be responsible to those animals. Your book is about a sort of inflection point 40,000 years ago when the relationship between animals and humans changes, according to your hypothesis, fairly significantly by animals, by wolf dogs and people not doing what comes naturally, acting against nature in a way. Is it possible for us to do the same thing now? Can you abdicate or somehow finesse your role as an invasive species? I would like to think so. I would hope so. We need to shape the whole system differently from the way we're doing. And I think also for mental and social health, we need to figure animals into the equation. If we build cities that are concrete boxes with no open space and no contact with nature and no place for somebody to have a cat or a dog or a parrot or, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I don't mean to make it just cats and dogs. It's just dogs are so important because they were first. 
No, you probably can't keep a yak. <laughs> Some people probably do. A city. Some people probably do. And don't give people in Bloomington the idea. <laughs> It'll become a, an issue a for thing. the city council. Yes. But we need to revise our thinking to incorporate that because it's very, very old in people. I mean, it's ancient in our lineage that we live with animals. If you say, okay, it's only 40,000 years old that we've been domesticating animals. 40,000 years is a lot of time. That's a lot of generations. We need to allow for that to happen partly because it's so good for humans. People who are elderly, disabled, isolated socially for one reason or another, people in nursing homes, people in hospitals, do much better if they have even small contact with animals. The therapy animals that come around, there are therapy chickens, there are therapy kittens, dogs, cats, llamas, you name it, it can be done with almost any animal that is domesticatable. But you're arguing, if I understand correctly, not just for this enlightened self-interest of a happy collaboration with animals, but a broader picture of, as you say, stewardship. No longer mm -hmm. let's kill everything we need to kill to survive, but let's right. sustain what we have. Is that yeah, accurate? and allow different options for people with different views of life, different abilities. It's a different and it's a less selfish view of how we live on this earth. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for the interesting questions. Paleoanthropologist Pat Shipman, author of The Invaders, How Humans and Their Dogs Drove Neanderthals to Extinction. She spoke with WFIU's Will Murphy. Pat Shipman and our other guest on today's program, Peter Singer, both recently visited Bloomington as part of Indiana University's Themester 2018, which focuses on the interaction between human and non-human animals. I'm human animal Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.